We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Acts chapter 4, we are continue our series through the book of Acts. Last week, we saw Peter and John show compassion on a man that was crippled since birth. Over the last two weeks, we've seen this, this story. This man that was crippled by birth, laying outside the temple, asking for money, asking for alms, asking for people to help him. He was physically unable to get into the temple, and he was not welcome into the temple as his um, disability was considered um, uncleanliness for him. And so he sat outside the temple as close as he could get to the presence of God without actually being able to get into the presence of God, desperate for others to be generous and kind to him so he could have lunch that day. And Peter and John come walking by and they see him and he asks them for money. They don't have any money. They don't even have money for their own lunch. So they tell him, I don't have any silver or gold, but what we do have, we'll give to you. And they reach out their hand and they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And they lift him to his feet. And the text tells us immediately his legs were healed. This man had not walked in his entire life, around 40 years old. And now he's walking for the first time in his life. And he begins to dance and to sing and to rejoice. And he runs into the temple This begins to draw a crowd, and as the crowd gathers around, um, Peter begins to preach to the crowd. He begins to declare um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. It's by Christ that this man was healed, and it's through Christ that you have salvation. To which we would expect them to receive an incredibly uh, warm welcome. Right? They're able to heal a man that's been crippled since birth, through the power of Jesus. They proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus, and you would expect a really warm welcome for them, and they begin to get that from the multitudes, from the crowds that are gathered. They begin to see and to believe in Jesus. But ironically, it's the religious leaders who have an issue with this. It's the religious leaders who put up a resistance towards this. They had told the crowd that the crowd was guilty. They had told the crowd that the crowd was in need, and they had told them that salvation comes through the resurrected Christ. And the multitude begins to join them. We'll see in a moment how many. The religious leaders are having an issue with this. They feel threatened by this. This message that they're teaching, this good news, this gospel, is actually leading people away from the teaching of the religious leaders, leading people away from their dependency upon these religious leaders and their laws and their sacrifices and their requirements to be right. It's challenging their whole paradigm of thought by calling them into trusting Jesus. And that's where we pick up in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is not only the continuation of this story in like a meta-narrative sense, like, okay, the story keeps going. It's literally still in the very moment that that we left off last week. So they proclaim Jesus. They tell them in chapter 3, verse 26, turn every one of you from your wickedness. And chapter 4 continues immediately. In chapter 4, what we're about to see is Peter and John get arrested for what they have just said and what they have just done. There is opposition to them. 
And this isn't the last time we'll see opposition in the book of Acts. If you remember a few weeks ago in chapter two, they're all speaking in tongues. They're, they're preaching the gospel in other people's languages and everyone thinks they're drunk, right? They say it says they're mock, they were mocked by everyone. And now there's actually opposition. It's gone from mocking to opposition. And church, the opposition won't stop in the rest of the book. Every chapter from this point to the end is dripped with opposition. It's dripped with suffering. It's dripped with people trying to stop the message of Christ going forward. The context of Acts is opposition to the gospel. In a way, the story of Acts is actually a historical account about how God's mission is not stopped by opposition. It's a historical account further about how God actually uses opposition to shape his people and to spread his gospel. He uses opposition to shape his people and to spread his gospel. Everything we see from this moment on is in this context of opposition. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed, the text tells us. Greatly annoyed at their preaching. I've been in West Africa preaching the gospel and had um, Muslim religious leaders greatly annoyed at me and drive me out of the village. I've been in Mexico and had um, Catholic leaders greatly annoyed and drive me out of the village. I've been in India and had various religions greatly annoyed and tried to silence our gatherings. I've even preached one Sunday morning at Emmaus Church and after the service had a lady come forward, clarify what I was saying, and when I said, yes, you're right, that's what I mean, she shoved me and pushed me back. One of our worship leaders at the time jumped in between us. He was like, there's going to be a fight. I was like, she's like four foot 11, I'm okay. Right? There was annoyance. What I was saying that day was actually in this text that salvation comes through Jesus alone and it made her so mad, she shoved me right after the service down front. This often happens around the globe. Annoyance, displeasure, and opposition of the gospel. Peter and John are arrested. And this is about as easy as the opposition gets for them moving forward. Let's read the text. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had, uh, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and, the, and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him 
this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the, men, the man who was stand, healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. It's a long text. Summary. Peter and John perform a miracle in the name of Jesus. Lame man since birth begins walking. He's almost 40 years old. The crowds begin to stir. They gather around. They preach the gospel. People begin to come to them and believe the gospel. About 5,000 men. It's believed to be probably closer to 8,000 people in total now. And so we've gone from 120 in chapter 2 to now 8,000 at this point. The numbers keep coming. The people keep um, uh, believing. And the news is spreading. The religious leaders are threatened, and they begin to oppose them by arresting them. And when they arrest them, they ask them, in whose name are you doing this? By what power are you healing this man? And Peter just says, if you're asking what we did, in whose name we did a good deed to a man, right? Catch his little jab there. Are you really, are you really um, putting us on trial for, like, healing a man? You're putting us on trial for, like, making a man who's never walked able to walk? All right, if that's what you're doing... We're doing that in the power of Jesus. That's 
who were doing it. In fact, we're doing it in the name of Jesus, the cornerstone that God had set up from the foundation of time that you rejected and killed. That Jesus is the one we did this in. And salvation comes through no one but that Jesus. Well, this makes them irate. But they can't do anything about it. Because as they're angry, they look next to Peter and John, and next to Peter and John's this guy that's never walked before, just standing there going, right? Like, what do you do with this guy? It's like your, your evidence is right next to them. And so they literally say, we, we can't do anything because he's here. It's evident they've healed him, and the entire crowd is on their side. So let's send them away and let's discuss with ourselves. So they send them away. And then all these religious leaders, like, like the who's who of religious leaders, are all gathered together to decide what do we do with them. And then they call them back, and this is what they want to do. Hey, don't preach Jesus anymore. Stop talking about him. If you do that, we'll let you go. Well, Peter doesn't give in. John doesn't give in. Instead, they look at them and they go, it's up to you to decide if we should obey you or obey God. Right? We're, we're going to obey God, though. If you don't think that's right, that's your call. But we're going to obey God, and we've seen what we've seen, and we've heard what we've heard. We know who God is, and we know who Christ is. We're going to keep speaking his name. But they can't do anything about it. And so they release them to go. When they leave, they go back to, the, to where the other um, believers are at, and they go into the room, and they begin to tell them, hey, <laughs> let me tell you about our experience. We, this guy was asking for money. We had no money, so instead we gave him legs. And then after we gave him legs, he was dancing, and the, the religious leaders were mad, so they put us on trial. You might have heard about it. News was spreading everywhere. They told us we weren't allowed to speak about Jesus anymore. We told them, that's not going to happen. We're going to keep preaching about Jesus, and now here we are. And so the response that the church has is not to run and hide. The response the church has is, ah, but you know what? We should probably think about what you said to them. You might owe them an apology. Nor is the response that the church had to say, yeah, like, like we'll show them. <laughs> Their response is prayer. And they begin praying. And they begin praying, and in their prayers, they begin quoting Scripture. And they remind themselves of God's sovereignty, of his plan, that even the death of Christ was his plan predestined from the foundations of the earth. That none of this caught God off, off guard. And if none of that caught God off guard, then this same experience did not catch God off guard. In God's sovereignty, this is what we are facing right now. Let's continue to be faithful in it. And then they pray, not for opposition to leave, but for boldness to keep speaking. And then it says the Holy Spirit fell, the room shook, and they continued to preach the name of Jesus in boldness. What I want to do today is I want to give us a couple marks of a community on mission. That's our tagline in this series should be behind me here, a community on mission. It's not only our tagline for the series, it's our prayer this year, that God would take um, and do what only he could do, take a ragtag group of people that gather together every week known as Emmaus Church and make us an emboldened and empowered community on mission for the gospel of Christ. I believe in this text we see four marks of a community on mission. First, a community on mission is marked by boldly declaring 
the resurrected Jesus. By boldly declaring the resurrected Jesus. We see this in chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. As they're gathered together, they speak boldly about this Jesus. They, They proclaim him boldly, salvation in him alone. They even call out the guilty sinner and go, listen, you are guilty of his death and you need his salvation. And it comes through no one but him. In chapter 4, verse 8, it tells us that they declared Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Right? This wasn't in their own power, and their own ability, but the Spirit, who had already given them power, now empowers them to speak the gospel boldly to others. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, it says that they declared Jesus to the guilty sinner. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, it says that they declare Jesus as the only way of salvation. Perhaps this this feels limiting to you. Perhaps perhaps this idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation seems like it's kind of um, maybe unfair and it's limiting of his grace. But but think with me in this. Here's the beautiful piece of this, is that Jesus is the only way of salvation and he's available to everyone who will believe to everyone who believes, right? It's, it's not he's the only way and man, like you have to get your act together to be able to get blessed by him. Just as he's the only way and all you have to do is to look to him in faith with your emptiness, with your brokenness, in your desperation, you look to him in faith and go, I need salvation and you're saved. He's available to all who believe. And church, they declare Jesus over and over again in the midst of opposition. Over and over again in the midst of opposition. The community on mission is marked by boldly declaring the resurrected Jesus. Secondly, a community on mission is marked by ordinary people who have been with Jesus. A community on mission is marked by ordinary people who have been with Jesus. Look at verse, chapter 4, verses 13, verse 13 and following. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is one of the most freeing verses to all of us normal people you could ever find. I count myself among you. I know I'm a professional pastor. I'm probably one of the least educated and least smart professional pastors you'll ever meet. I consider myself, though educated, very uneducated. I consider myself common. These men even more so. These men even more so. Common men, fishermen. They don't have religious training. They haven't gone through rabbinical school. They're just common men who have been with Jesus. And when they've been with Jesus, it produces boldness. When they've been with Jesus, it produces clarity. When they've been with Jesus, it produces proclamation of Jesus. Those who have been with Jesus declare him. We see this from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 12. Those who have been with Jesus love like Jesus. 
In chapter four, verse nine, again, their, their remark, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known that it's by Jesus Christ, right? Like they consider we did a good deed to a crippled man. They're loving like Jesus. I mean, think about these men. Like, where did they learn to offer their hand to lift this man up to give him legs again? Except that for three years, they've walked with Jesus and seen Jesus do this over and over and over again. Over and over again, Jesus cares for the poor and the outcasts. He goes after the ones that the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with. He chases down the people in the corners of the streets and the highways who are hiding and afraid. He goes after the lame and he heals their legs. He goes after the blind and he gives them sight. He goes after those who are um, poor and he cares for them. He even calls to himself those who are mourning and those who are weak and those who have nothing to offer all the elitists out there. And so they know nothing else to do than to walk up to a man who can't walk and go, I've seen Jesus do it, let's do this. In the name of Jesus, who I've seen do this, get up and walk. Do you remember the man by the pool of Bethesda? Right, the man who had been crippled for, for decades, and Jesus walks in and goes, why aren't, what, what do you need? And the man's like, there's no one to throw me in the pool when the angel stirs the water so I can be healed. Jesus goes, well, do you want to be healed? <laughs> yeah, I want to be healed. Then be healed, get up and walk. The man lowered down to him through the roof. Right? It's not even the man's faith that Jesus responds to. The man doesn't even go find Jesus. His friends carry him, bust a hole through some dude's roof, lowers this, their friend down in front of him, and Jesus says, because of your friend's faith, I'm healing you. They know nothing to do but to be like Jesus whom they've been with. And Jesus seeks to heal the broken. Through and through. And remember, this man's brokenness and his healing is not only an issue of his legs and his ankles, it's actually also an issue of his heart. Now he can go into the temple, into the presence of God, and ironically, when he gets there, he finds he's already experienced God. A community on mission is marked by ordinary people who have been with Jesus. They declare Jesus. They love like Jesus. They obey Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. Don't speak the name of Jesus. And their response is, you're going to have to decide for yourself who you think we should obey, you or God, but we're going to obey God. Church, the scriptures say a lot about submission to authorities. In every realm of life, our default as believers should always be submission to our authorities because Scripture lays that out. Unless our authorities ask us to go in direct disobedience to Scripture. And then there is a right place to walk in obedience to God, not authorities. And no matter what it cost them, they chose to obey God, not their authorities that day. God had said, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The authorities said, hey, don't be his witnesses. And they went, we're going to have to go with Jesus on this one. He rose from the dead. You have not. We'll go with him. Community on mission is marked by ordinary people who have been with Jesus, who are bold about Jesus in the face of opposition. 
So a community on mission is marked by boldly declaring the resurrected Jesus. Second, a community on mission is marked by ordinary people who have been with Jesus. Third, a community on mission is marked by gathering with the people of God. It's marked by gathering with the people of God. Chapter 4, verses 23 and following is the account of this. After this, they don't run, they don't hide, they go back to the people of God, tell the people of God what they have experienced, and they allow the people of God to walk with them through this. Specifically, the people of God gathered together that day to pray. Verses 23 through 30 is all a prayer. In their prayer, they even quote scripture like we do in our prayers here on Sunday mornings. They pray. And in their prayer, they ask God to give them boldness. And in their prayer, they ask God to remind them of his sovereignty. In their prayer, they remember God's plan of salvation and they remember God's promise of Christ. They gather together to pray, not for comfort or preferences or protection, but for boldness and faith. And they gathered to hear God's word. Again, they quote scripture in the midst of their prayer. Because what I have to say to you is great, but what God has to say to you is a lot better. It's healing. And so in chapter 4, verses 25 to 26, they see from the words of David in the Old Testament, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed one. And they remind themselves from scripture that Jesus has come and that the nations raged against him, that they sought to kill him and to destroy him. What they have witnessed in the person and the life of Jesus and his death is also um, prophecy coming true from David here in this passage. And it emboldens them to look at scripture and to gain faith because what God has said would come has come. They learn to trust him. Because as they gathered, they encouraged each other to trust God's sovereign plan. Specifically, chapter 4, verses 27 through 31. When they said this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant of Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, um, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You planned this for Jesus and it came true. We're trusting that this opposition is your plan as well. So give us boldness in it. Give us boldness in this. There's a type of trust in God's sovereignty and in his plans and in his faithfulness, especially in the face of opposition and suffering that only comes through the encouragement of one another reminding each other of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty. Um, Pastor Ronnie, who we sent out uh, a couple months ago, he used to say often that, I, uh, that when the Jesus in me feels very small, I need the Jesus in you. Right? When I'm struggling to hold on in faith, I need to look to you and see Jesus big in you. I need to be reminded of him from you so that the Jesus in me begins to feel stronger. I have hope and faith where I once did not have hope and faith. Fourth, a community on mission is marked by opposition. It's just going to happen. We see it through the rest of this book. 
We see it through all of church history. And we see it today. When we moved to this location as a congregation in 2017, we did a survey of all the homes in North Kansas City, and we walked home to home, knocking on doors and talking to people about um, their church experience, their faith, and we were met with more curse words and more threats than we were met with kindness on that. Right, right here in our own neighborhoods, the opposition. And we have it very light compared to what most of the world has in opposition. And a community on mission will continue to find this. But here's the promise, church. Here's what makes this passage so beautiful. Is their faith and their boldness came out of the promises of Christ. In, in, in the book of Matthew, in the scene at the end of Matthew when Jesus is ascending into heaven, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. And then in the book of Acts, Luke gives his account of the ascension, and he says this. Luke quotes Jesus as saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Do you realize what Jesus has just promised here? In his last gathering with his followers, his last gathering with the 120, the 120 that now is over 8,000, the last gathering with his men, here's what he promises them. Knowing that opposition would come, knowing that suffering would be at their doorstep, knowing that their faith was fragile and their will was weak, he spoke these promises to them. First, I have authority. I have all the authority. There will be suffering, but your suffering is not in charge. I am. There will be opposition, but those who oppose you do not hold the power. I do. There will be dark days and hard nights, but all the authority over all of these is mine. I have the authority. Secondly, he told them this. I will not leave you. The one who holds the authority over all of the opposition and all of the suffering and all of the dark nights will not leave you. You may feel alone when standing on trial or in prison. You may think that I have left you when opposition comes. There will be days you feel you have been abandoned. I promise you that you have not been left with you. Church, can you let that sink in for a moment? Can you just let it sink in for a moment, wherever you're at in darkness, in opposition, in suffering, in sin, wherever you're at in these broken moments, and you feel alone and isolated like God has forgotten you, and he's not there to rescue you, and he's not been faithful to you, maybe he's even screwed you. He has not left you. He's there, he's present, and he has authority over all these things. Trust him, lean into him. Make Psalm 13 a prayer of yours over and over and over again. He hasn't left you. The third promise he says is this, 
I will send my spirit to you and you will receive power. I'm going to send my spirit and you'll receive power. And here's why that's important, because I'm about to send you out to wolves. I'm going to send you as sheep among the wolves to be devoured to proclaim my name. I want you to go to those who will oppose you, go to those who will imprison you, go to those who will torture you, go to those who will kill you, go to those who will mock you. I want you to go into the face of opposition to be devoured, but I'm not sending you on your own, not by your own power. I will send my spirit, and my spirit will reside upon you and will give you power to do so give you power to do so. And the story of Acts, church, is the account of Jesus keeping each of these promises. Over and over again, his followers um, find his faithfulness to these promises in the face of opposition and suffering. Over and over again. And guess what else they find? They find his faithfulness to heal and to save. Over and over and over again. In chapter two, we saw 3,000 cry out, what do we do? What do we do with this message of the gospel? And Peter goes, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That's what you do with it. Place your faith in Christ and give your life to him. Repent and be baptized. And 3,000 do. Now in chapter four, we have the multitudes. What do we do? They say, look to Christ, the only one of salvation. Repent and be baptized. And the number's now up to five to 8,000. They're coming. He's faithful to save and he's faithful to heal. He's bringing wholeness in every realm of life. Leading to the day when he will one day return and he will make all things new. When he will complete his promises and he will wipe out all evil and suffering and opposition and he will reign as king over all and we will be able to rest in the peace of a new heaven and a new earth. And until then, we go into opposition, trusting his promises, boldly declaring him, doing, I'm loving like Jesus loves, praying and asking for boldness and walking forward in faithfulness. So, here are my six pastoral charges. Don't panic. I'm just reading each one. I'm giving you no commentary on them. Six pastoral charges. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus' people. Spend time praying. Spend time proclaiming Jesus. Expect opposition. And expect Jesus to fill, to fulfill his promises in the opposition. You can expect that because he's promised to do so. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with his people. Spend time praying. Spend time proclaiming. Expect opposition and expect Jesus to keep his promises. He always has and he always will. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I thank you for bringing healing and conviction and challenge through it. Father, no doubt there's some in this room that need to be reminded that you are with them and that you are not abandoning them and that you are faithful to them. There's some of us in this room who need to be reminded that 
that you have authority over all the opposition and the suffering in our lives. There's some of us that need to be reminded that you heal and that you save. And Father, I pray today that you would heal and that you would save even in this room. Father, I believe we all, we all can be reminded to spend a little bit more time in prayer and with God's people, encouraging one another to faithfulness and boldness for the sake of the gospel. Spirit, would you give us a boldness that only you can give us? For we are afraid and we are weak. We are cowards. We are timid. We are anxious. We're uneducated, common people. We need you. So give us power to speak the name of Jesus. And may you save. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, every week we take communion at the end of the service. We gather together and we um, come before the table. We take the bread, we take the juice, and we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. As we do so, those of us who come and take this, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have placed our faith in Jesus, what we're actually doing every week is we're getting the chance to freshly profess our faith in Christ. This is what I believe. I believe in his blood. I believe in his body. I believe in his resurrection. This is where my faith is. And so if you're a follower of Jesus in a moment, what we'll invite you to do is to stand, to exit to your right. We typically start at the front of the room, move our way back. You'll exit to your right. You'll come down. You'll get bread. You'll get juice. Um, you go back to your seat. Take that. We'll close with a song and a benediction. And as you do that, remember, you're professing faith in Christ again. Yes, this is what I still believe. I believed it last week. I believe it again this week. I believe in Jesus. I'm placing my faith in Jesus. If you're not a believer, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then our invitation to you is not to come take this. Church, I, I don't know how it can be any plainer than what the text said today. There is no salvation in anyone's name other than Jesus's. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, our begging of you today would be that you would look at yourself and see sinfulness, and that you would look at Christ and see grace, and that you would come to Jesus in faith and be saved. If you don't know what that looks like or what that means, we'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. Again, I'll be down front. I'd love to meet with you. Church, come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.